Today, we celebrate our 200th episode. And what better way to do it than with infamous cult leader, I mean serial killer, Ted Bundy. Today, we discuss Bundy's upbringing, his dive into criminal activity, the way he'd stalk his victims, and finally, his first few known murders. We'll get into all of this and probably shit on his pompous personality along the way. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought this day would never come, you're not the only one. So stick around. Happy 200th episode, Necronama family. This is Necronomapod. And there he was, an operative for the Republican gubernatorial candidate. Pleasant and sophisticated, even when he was accused of political spying. It's hard for me to believe that what I did is newsworthy. And my part in the campaign was so insignificant, I'm embarrassed that I should be getting this publicity from it. Uh, really embarrassed. <laughs> Bundy's years in the Pacific Northwest were busy ones. He earned a degree in psychology, entered law school, and worked in mental health and law enforcement. By all appearances, he was on the road to success. In 1974, police began investigating crimes involving women, mostly college students. Nearly every month in and around Seattle, a young woman was murdered or disappeared. So this is a rare occurrence for me. Yeah. You did the Kent State outline. That was what, two weeks ago? Two, three weeks ago? Uh, it was more, uh, maybe, maybe Something about like three, three weeks ago. And I already have a break. You did the whole Ted Bundy outline. You've written the book on him. I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you know, I wasn't going to brag about it, but you're oh, okay. welcome. I gave you the notes. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm thinking it's going to be a two, maybe three parter. I'll okay. see how I finish. But yeah, I figured, you know what? You take this one off. I'm, I, I know everything there is to know about Ted Bundy. I'll write the notes and I'll give them to you. Did you learn anything new in this vast amount of research you've done on Ted no. Bundy that you didn't already know? No, nobody taught me anything on this one. <laughs> They've used me as sources in Ted Bundy books. <laughs> so I figured, hey, I'll write the outline and, and you just go ahead and read it, pal. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, happy Father's Day. Thanks. <laughs> I'll take the day off. Yeah. So I, I joined this podcast because I figured, eh, we'll get 10 weeks out of it and I'll just drink beer with my buds and then yep. we'll go back to watching wrestling and uh, 190 episodes past that and here we are. 200. I'm, I'm thinking this became like a thing. It's evolved a lot. That's slightly a thing. Yeah. People with tattoos are like, you motherfuckers, this better <laughs> be a thing. We got through COVID and stuff. Recording remotely. It was a lot. For almost was, a whole uh, year. Necker now has survived a pandemic. A global pandemic. It's true. I don't think we missed a damn week during that. Ever. And we weren't even in the same fucking town at that point. Yeah, for parts of it. Yeah, for I didn't most love, of it. I didn't love that remote stuff because you were kind of... Says the guy who's already booking his, his retirement and getting the fuck out of here. I am moving out of Ohio at some point, so it will become a remote show here. And but we can afford <laughs> we can afford better equipment by then. Sure, sure. It but won't it, sound like we're talking in a fucking <laughs> tunnel or something. But you're just kind of at the whim of the of the internet company, and yeah. I don't know. Sometimes there's service drops, and you get dropouts over the internet, and uh, it it's was, certainly it not was hard thing. sometimes. Sure, yeah. and, you and we didn't have video. For any of that. No, no. Pretty much all of 2020 was just no video. We tried video. I want to say it was like a Michael, the Michael Jackson episodes. Maybe. We recorded one or that was a two parter, wasn't it? Or was that one long part? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was too much. Okay. Well, yeah, it was too. <laughs> I think we recorded one or two parts, both parts separate. And I think we tried video, but it, it just didn't work. It's like it was weird. a delay. That's yeah. weird. Because it wasn't the same. We were using a different audio system than the video was. Yeah. So it's not like it was synced up. So then when we did audio during the pandemic a few times, you know, you don't see each other. You kind of talk over like you don't know when someone else is going to speak. It, it, the conversation doesn't flow as well. Sure. I feel like ideal. I've gotten into a rim, a rhythm with my outline writing where I like give a break where I figure one of you guys are going to talk. Well, and when Dave takes his glasses off, we know that's the universal well, sign for he has something to say. For almost all of 2020, I didn't have the, right. the glasses. Visual cues. Right. I, it was just all. If we're going to no you know, video. break kayfabe for a minute, yeah. when Dave takes his reading glasses off. He's got something to say. Yeah. So I don't it's know. True. It's been very cool. I don't know. Very humble for all of it. More than anyone ever expected. That's right. Yeah. More than people probably wanted. <laughs> like, oh, these assholes are doing an Earth episode. Like that guy on just the other day on iTunes. One star. Nope, not for me. <laughs> fair, we, fair enough. Did we talk about that last week? No, I don't remember that. We can't fault you with that. No, that's, that's fair. But that's a good opinion. review. Sure. Like you don't need to be mean or shit on us. Yeah. If it's not for you, it's not for you. Okay. You didn't have to call me a potato or say anything nasty <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we're obviously not for the majority of people, but you don't have to be insulting about it. Yeah. Someone at my dad's work went in to listen to it, and he was like, let's let me give you a heads up on what, what my son does. <laughs> so, so my son's a potato, and he works with two drunk jackasses who don't let him tell his damn story. Who occasionally rate the hottest dogs to fuck. Also true. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, look, I'm the only one who answered the question that you guys asked. You guys didn't have the balls to answer that question. Asked and answered. Asked and answered. (laughs) Don't say I ever run from a question. (laughs) Anyways, we'll save more of this maybe for the year-end show when we recap this year. Talk about by then we'll be at what, you know. I'm not good at math, but by then we'll probably be at 400 episodes or something. I don't know. I don't think that's how math works, no. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, never mind then. Not on the Gregorian calendar, no. I think you're just making up words now. <laughs> so we saved our highly requested one. Apparently Dave's episode was not good enough though. I thought the Ted Bundy episode we did on Patreon on April 1st, 2021 year of our Lord was an exhaustive look at Ted Bundy in a very thoughtful and it's almost selfish that people didn't love that one and demanded something else. I feel unappreciated, yeah. maybe, that they weren't satisfied with just that episode alone. And we should say it was on Patreon, so you'd have to be on that. We, we tried to give them something special. Never satisfied. So, today we'll break down Zac Efron's body, <laughs> his abs, yeah, his dynamite areolas. Who was better, Zac Efron or Ted Bundy? I am not hard in the slightest right now. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get you there, pal. We'll get you there. Give a little more Zach Efron. Nights early, buddy. Yeah. Is Ted Bundy the Casey Anthony for women? Don't know. If he's not, who would be? I'm not saying it's quite as extreme. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it would be him. I mean, if you're getting Zach Efron to play you, 
Yeah. You must be a decent looking guy. There is one of those pics of Bundy where he looks just like Zach Efron. We looked at it earlier tonight with, with the with the beard, yeah. right? Like it's like a ringer picture. It's crazy. It's almost hard to tell which one is which. But mostly the the if you watch the interviews with Bundy in the pictures, he's just a goofy fucking He's a goofball. I don't know. Yeah. I don't he's not some overly gorgeous handsome dude. I don't know. Is it his charisma? Is it his confidence? Did he have the it factor? Yeah. Oh, for sure. The charming. He seems charm. to have. Yeah. yeah. He seems the, goofy as fuck to me, but I guess. <laughs> he seems like a, a guy who likes to talk a lot to make you think he's smarter than he actually is. Is how he comes off to me in all those interviews that you can, right. can watch. I would fall for Ted Bundy. If I saw Ted Bundy walking around and running his mouth, I might think that... He's trying to be smarter than he is, mm. but I wouldn't think he's doing this. What what we're like going to get into just, tonight, I wouldn't think that guy is doing I, this. I think that's right. He's just like a goofy legal fuckboy kind of. <laughs> but yeah, right. You wouldn't yeah. peg him as a as a right uh, a serial killer. I think that's yeah. fair. I would be like, this guy's an idiot. Yeah, he's a clown. Right. Just trying to show off, trying to get laid, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, trying to one up you. All right, let's dive into it. We got a lot to get to. Ted Bundy was born Theodore Cowell on November 24th, 1946 in Burlington, Vermont to Eleanor Louise Cowell, but she didn't go by Eleanor. She just went by Louise. It's not clear who Bundy's father was and rule who worked with Bundy at a crisis center, taking calls from people at risk of suicide claimed in her book that Bundy's birth certificate says that a salesman and air force vet named Lloyd Marshall was his father. His mother, Louise, said that she hooked up with a war vet named Jack Worthington, but he bailed as soon as she got pregnant. We're going to talk about it in a bit, but some family members say that Bundy's grandfather was a real piece of shit, and he was actually raping Louise, and Bundy was a product of incest. So he, I didn't know he was from uh, Burlington, Vermont, originally. That's interesting. Yeah. If he would have went a different way, maybe he would have met Ben and Jerry, who are also from Burlington. It could have been Ted and Ben and Jerry's ice cream. It could have been. <laughs> he might have went down a different path. I'm just saying there's multiple paths available to Ted. Might have had like chocolate chip choke out. Interesting flavors of Ted and Ben and Jerry's. Sure. Sounds good. Cookies and cremation. I don't know. He certainly would have avoided that rocky road he was going down. Exactly right. And that prey leaned into the car window and he bashed him in the back of the head and then he killed him. <laughs> if only. Yeah, you never know. There's no proof about anything that we just said about Ted Bundy's, uh, who Ted Bundy's father was, besides Louise being Bundy's mother. A lot of people try to get themselves over regarding Ted Bundy, like a psychiatrist named Dorothy Lewis that interviewed Bundy and made a whole bunch of claims including one that she got a sample of Bundy's DNA, tested it, and proved that he wasn't a product of incest. Dr. Lewis didn't provide any information as to how she got the sample or any of the actual results. She just said it. We're going to see that a lot in Ted Bundy's story. There's a lot of people who just say things and don't have proof to back it up. I think that's how our world works these days. <laughs> yeah. Is he the most a lot of that going on. famous serial killer in American history? Yes, by So far. that's why. When you, you know, everybody wants a claim and a piece of that. Oh, I, I went to a third grade with him and 
back then I saw him do this and this and this, and I knew he was like this. So, you know, everyone just kind of chomps at the bit. Yeah, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of people who have tried to hide their names in this story. They have their association. Yeah, yeah, and they haven't. Sometimes they haven't been hidden that well, but at the same time, there's been like three or four different aliases used in different mm. books. So it gets a little muddy with names in the story as well. And we've talked a whole bunch about society not being kind to women over the course of human history in this, uh, in this show. And one of those is uh, the aspect of single mothers. The first one that popped in my head when I was writing this was Eileen Warnos's mother getting pregnant out of wedlock and the whole social stigma um, and terrible experience of living in a home for unwed mothers. And the same was for Louise. She was sent to Elizabeth Lund home for unwed mothers. And instead of helping her in life, Louise's parents doubled down on this nonsense of not being able to be a single mother. You know what they call home for unwed mothers today? What's that? Uh, just a home. It's wherever you <laughs> fucking live. You're not ridiculous. Sent, sent to somewhere like it's fucking prison. Home for unwed mothers. Like you're fucking going to Leper Island or something. Yeah. Like it's for real, like a prison. Oh, yeah. Like oh, oh, yeah. Leper Island. He acts like he doesn't know what Australia is. <laughs> <laughs> for the first three years of Bundy's life, he lived with his grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell. To avoid the social stigma of being a single mother, Bundy was raised as if his grandparents were his mother and father and his biological mother, Louise, was his sister. Like a lot of the story, the household environment and Ted's behavior is up for debate. Bundy's aunt, Julia, who also lived in the grandparents' house, said that when Ted was three years old, she woke up from a nap and Ted had her surrounded with knives and was standing there smiling. This is just my opinion. But I think after reading a couple books on Ted Bundy and, and looking into this a lot, I think this is another case of someone trying to get themselves over. Like you said, he's the most famous serial killer ever. People just want to jump on board. Yeah. And have we're going to try say. and have their two cents into it. Be featured on documentary or something. It's a good visual, though. Yeah, but that's something out of a movie. Like sure, you wake up and you're just surrounded is. in knives like. That didn't happen. Mike did that, but he did it with championship belts and luchador masks, right? <laughs> I still do that. I just got to pull those out of storage in my basement. In most interviews with law enforcement and anyone that Ted Bundy agreed to talk to, uh, he said that he looked up to his grandfather and that his grandfather was a perfect role model. In 1987, towards the end of his life, Bundy and some other family members told lawyers for appeal filings that Samuel Cowell was an extremely hateful man who was racist and beat his wife. Those accounts also bring up an incident of Samuel Cowell throwing Bundy's Aunt Julia down a flight of stairs for sleeping too long and swinging around stray cats by their tails. There was also some claims of mental illness regarding his grandparents. Those filings claim that Samuel Cowell would talk to people that weren't there and that Bundy's grandmother, Eleanor, would regularly undergo electroshock therapy for depression. There isn't any concrete proof on any of this, and there are researchers and members of law enforcement who think that these claims were just kind of made up or fabricated a bit just to win appeals. A la Casey Anthony throwing her pops under the bus to get acquitted. Yeah, or like grabbing that woman that her dad drowned her kid in a pool, yeah. and all of a sudden... right. Her kid drowned in a pool. <laughs> yeah. That kind of stuff. 
1950, Louise changed her last name from Cowell to Nelson and left Philadelphia to move in with her cousin Jane and her husband Alan in Tacoma, Washington. It's not clear about that that last name change. What it sounded like to me was that her family kind of pushed that on her. Like, we don't want you to have our last name. Get the fuck out of here. Kind of vibe is Rude. what I got from it. Yeah. Rude. Just because she had a one night stand with probably a an Air Force guy. Like, can you, I can't. I can't envision hating someone in your family like that or your kid because they got pregnant. Like, yeah. People like to fuck, man. They're human. <laughs> That's what people do. It's one of the only joys in this life. Yeah. Like. Just calm down. It's okay. Yeah, it's Jesus is fine with it. Relax. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus likes to He's fuck cool. too. It's okay. <laughs> Jesus fucked. Spoiler alert say, for all you people. Jesus fucked too. Uh, that should be a new shirt. Jesus fucks. <laughs> Jesus liked the pussy. He gave Mary Magdalene anal all the time. He loved it. It's okay. Just go listen to Bible Babble. It's on Patreon. <laughs> he liked their pooper. He liked to put his penis in a pooper. <laughs> Jesus liked butt sex. He loved it. I think he invented butt sex. He, he might may have, have, Mike. He, he may might have. have been the first person to be like, holes is holes, Joseph. <laughs> like, God fucked your wife, Joey. It's okay. People want to fuck. You think he cupped Judas? Did Judas have a wife? I don't know. They almost got divorced because they like just took off and followed Jesus around for a bunch of years, right? Those wives did. But then, meanwhile, Jesus was banging Judas's wife, and then Judas found out. Was that Jesus' scam? Like he got all the guys to leave, and then he fucked all their wives. That's so, pretty good. Now we're on this bad. Then. That's a biblical revision there. I like that. The Gospel of Cuckoldry. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus the Bull. <laughs> In 1951, Louise figured it was time to move on from all that negativity that was put on her, and she went to a singles night at the Tacoma First Methodist Church, which was kind of like a speed dating thing. There she met a hospital cook named John Bundy, and the two of them hit it off. They got married later in 1951, and John adopted Ted, officially giving him the name Ted Bundy, and Louise and John went on to have four other children. I'm sure he didn't regret that decision, right? <laughs> Depending on who he talked to, Bundy told different versions of his life in Tacoma. On one hand, he said he just kind of wandered around looking uh, in the trash for porn magazines. And on the other hand, he said that he would find true crime publications to read, but only the ones that involved sexual violence. If he could find ones with pictures of dead women, those ones would be the best. In a letter to Ann Rule, Bundy said, absolutely, none of that was true. Stephen McCod and Hugh Eisenworth were two journalists who were able to interview Bundy later in life. Um, he told them about escalation starting in these years. And based off other serial killers that we've covered, I personally feel like this is the closest thing to the truth. Bundy told McCod how he would canvas neighborhoods and find windows with blinds open to spy on women. Closureblinds.com can prevent that problem. 100%. Also, Peeping Toms maybe should be called Peeping Ted's going forward. <laughs> maybe so. How did they get that? How, did we ever discuss Peeping Toms, how that became a... A thing? A name? Peeping Tom? Like, what did Tom DeLong ever do to anyone? <laughs> maybe there was, like, multiple Toms that got busted for that and it just became a thing. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. I believe it's from the Lady Godiva story from England. Peeping Tom. Okay. So we have an origin story. 
like Lady Godiva's husband was taxing the people or something and to dissuade him, she rode naked through the streets and everyone turned away except some guy named Tom who who looked at her. <laughs> What the I, fuck's wrong with that? Good for Tom. I'd be I, doing the same thing. I'm pretty sure that's where the peeping Tom uh, name came from. <laughs> I picture is Tom from MySpace. <laughs> Just like the same profile with a white t-shirt on. Right. <laughs> Have you ever seen the horror movie Peeping Tom from like 1960 going way back to British film? I think no. we all know the answer to that Fucking question, creepy. <laughs> that's a good one if you want to watch an old horror movie. Peeping Tom. Really good. Name of the movie. Peeping Tom. It's a masterpiece. Should be peeping Ted, though. You're right. Peeping Ted. So this peeping into windows, uh, Ted would have been doing this during his high school years, which is in line with other serial killers we've talked about. And Ted Bundy was arrested twice in high school, one for burglary of a house and another time for stealing a car. There are also reports of Bundy sexually assaulting one of his sisters on a regular basis. But that comes from Dr. Dorothy Lewis which she kind of went into business for herself on that DNA claim. And there's no corroboration that Ted ever sexually assaulted any of his sisters. Another thing Bundy told multiple people who interviewed him was that he didn't understand personal relationships. He chose to be alone through high school because in his words, quote, I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what underlay social interactions. Girls liked him and found him attractive, but he just couldn't figure it out. He's like the original incel rewriting his high school story, I think. I'm not buying this one bit. Nope. Denied. We know from what we're going to talk about later that he will end up figuring this out. But it goes back to a couple weeks ago on Patreon when we talked about um, Rodney Alcala about that whole antisocial personality disorder. And you figure out a way to mimic the rest of society. You figure out what is acceptable norms mm. to get you by. And generally people that, you know, have this disorder are very, very charming and they can just blend right in once they figure it out. And you really can see this manifested in later video clips of him, just the way he talks it's almost reminiscent of the men in black where he's trying to masquerade as a human, but something's off. There's something off about him. Yeah. He doesn't function like a normal person. You can, you can sense that listening to him talk. It's very strange. He's not a real person. Yes. He is a shell of a, exactly of a right. Being. You can see it. Mm. So we are clearly stating right now, Ted Bundy is an alien. <laughs> Really, if you think about those men in black stories we've done where they're trying to mimic what a human is, but they're one like one step off because they don't fully understand what that means. That's that's the vibe I get from watching him. He's a weird fucking guy, man. He's a lot like Rodney Alcala and that just chance meeting like you just meet him for five minutes. You would never think anything like this. You would never think he would physically attack anyone. Yes. Agree. A lot of serial killers, I don't like to acknowledge that they're scary. It's just piece of shit guys that can't interact with women that end up taking it out on either women or their images of their mother. And, and you want to believe prey you, on the weak. And you want to believe you can spot them in a crowd. Like you right. see Gacy 
yeah, I could probably pick him out or Ted or um Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Like, be like he's right, off. Th- that pick- dude, that dude's exactly. a little weird. Like I'm not going home with that yeah. guy tonight. This guy's the anti serial killer. Why you pick Gacy? So the one guy shows up in a clown outfit, all of a sudden he's a killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like if the manager of KFC is asking you to come home and watch porn with him <laughs> and a group of other guys yeah. and teenage boys, yeah. I'd be like, nah, I'm good. Not homes. I'm straight. <laughs> it's getting weird. It's exactly what made this guy so dangerous. Absolutely. Bundy graduated high school in 1965 and attended the University of Puget Sound for one year and then transferred to the University of Washington. Things were going good for Bundy, and in 1967, he started dating a young woman named Marjorie Russell. So we talked about this today. At the time, when I wrote this, I didn't know that her real name had been used. You said you saw it in the documentary, potentially, on Netflix. They showed a picture of her yearbook with her full name, unless they somehow pseudonymed, <laughs> photoshopped that picture. I'm pretty sure that was her real name. And that's a weird thing with this story, like we said earlier, that names get changed. So the book that I read was Stephen McCowd and Hugh Eisenworth. They used Marjorie Russell. One of the big common ones was Stephanie Brooks. I saw they use in yours was Diane. Diane, they refer to her as Diane in Netflix. Yeah. And they showed a yearbook picture, which seems like that That'd was her. Real, that would be real fucking weird if they did that. Yeah, I think that was her. I think her name was Diane. That'd um, be ultimate kayfabe. <laughs> Too much, maybe. Too much. <laughs> so just for the sake of this outline, we're just going to go with Marjorie Russell. In 1968, Bundy got restless with school, feeling that he was too smart or above school, that he should just be doing great things. And that's that's the thing with antisocial personality disorder and being a psychopath in general is you get bored with stuff real quick. You need mm-hmm. constant. And you get this vibe from everything that he says. Very arrogant. He's too smart for everybody. So Bundy dropped out of college and worked a ton of different odd jobs. These odd jobs left him to volunteer at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. By this time, Bundy had figured out how to be very charming, which led him to be Arthur Fletcher's driver during Fletcher's campaign for lieutenant governor of Washington state. At this time, Bundy really wanted to make his way into politics. And in August of 1968, he attended the Republican National Convention as a Rockefeller delegate. Bundy saw the convention as a success in that he was able to meet and talk to people that could potentially advance his goals of a political career. But his girlfriend Marjorie didn't see it that way. The way it's told is that Marjorie was from a very well-off family and there were expectations as to who she dated. Bundy was trying to make his way into politics, but he wasn't making a ton of progress and he was still working jobs like being a dishwasher. Which there's nothing wrong with that when you're going to college. But Marjorie, um, like I said, there were expectations. So she broke up with Bundy because she didn't feel he had his priorities in order. And she said that he was immature. Well, socially, I mean, she can't date a dishwasher, right? Like she's elitist. She comes from a family, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, this is cleaning dishes. You're immature. Like, I can't be with you. Did this kick things off? The 1968 Uh. election kicked off a lot of shit. (laughs) Maybe we can add this to it. Did hating women kick off here? Mm. There's an argument to be made about the way these uh, victims look going forward. I don't disagree at all. For the record, Nelson Rockefeller did not win the nomination in 68, but did go on to become a vice president of the United States under Gerald Ford. Other nominees in 1968, 
the winner of the Republican nomination, Richard Nixon, George Romney, father of Mitt Romney, current U.S. Senator, and governor, governor of, of Michigan, governor of Michigan, and governor of California at the time, a young, younger Ronald Reagan. That's true. All of them. Nixon had a huge lead going in. It yeah. wasn't really close. Reagan made a small push at the end. That was it. The end. There you go again, Tricky Dick. <laughs> Bundy took this time to travel a bit. He visited relatives in Arkansas and made it back to Philadelphia and enrolled at Temple University for one semester. Here in 1969 is where some researchers believe Bundy found out the truth about his family, that his grandfather wasn't actually his father. Bundy told a girlfriend um, that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard. But he's told Stephen McCowd and Hugh Eisenworth that he found the certificate himself. Either way, Bundy resented his mother for it, and it just kind of depends on who you believe. So when they initially moved out west, why did he think he was moving with his sister? How did that get explained that his parents, like his sister was taking him and leaving his parents? If he still thought his grandparents were, were his parents. You know what I mean? Yeah, good point. How do they explain that to him? I'm not sure. Like your sister's taking you and leaving. Damn. I wonder. It makes you lean towards the cousin showing him a copy of it when they were young. Cause that, the way that that's described is like maybe nine or 10 years old. They're having this argument. And the cousin's like, Oh yeah, well fuck you. Yeah. How about this? And shows it to him. Cause this is all based on what he told us. Right. For the most part. Yeah. And he was probably very inconsistent or misleading in a lot of stuff. And I think a lot of that was on purpose. Yeah. Right. You know, if he has relatives in Arkansas, they have their own DNA testing company out there. It's called Incestry.com. <laughs> you can see everyone you're related to in a hundred mile yeah, radius. Yeah, right. It's a big circle. Yeah. Incidentally, it's everyone. If your brother's your husband, Incestry.com. That's <laughs> uh, not really funny at all, you motherfucker. <laughs> Arkansas is a great state. I would never disrespect Arkansas like that. West Virginia, maybe, but not Arkansas. <laughs> I never fucked my sister. She, she always turned you down. <laughs> she couldn't take my big cock. She wouldn't take my cigar. I said, fuck you, whore. Oh, man. Monica, who who pregame too early tonight, Dave? Who pregame too early tonight? <laughs> After a semester at Temple, <laughs> Bundy ended up back in Washington in the fall of 1969. It was then that he met Elizabeth Kopfler, who Bundy had the most intimate relationship with, as in that they lived together and things like that. Elizabeth was a single mother who had a three-year-old daughter at the time she met Bundy. Bundy ended up being a father figure to Elizabeth's daughter up until Bundy was arrested. Later on as an adult, she, being Molly Kopfler, wrote about how Bundy would molest her and say that they were just playing a game. This comes directly from her, so there's no reason to doubt that this happened or that she's trying to pull one over on anybody. I did not know that. Yeah. So I assume Liz was unaware this whole time, way back when? Yeah. And part two, we're definitely going to mm. talk about Liz a bunch because... Yeah. Liz ends up kind of being the hero and all She dropped of this. the dime, right? Yeah, she ends up being the hero. <laughs> That's a teaser. 
you know, for the one person like me who doesn't know the whole story. You wrote the outline. What are you I talking know, about? But I like to kayfabe. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm breaking kayfabe here. <laughs> We've been through so many walls. I don't know which <laughs> point we're at anymore. <laughs> Elizabeth was from Ogden, Utah, which will play a part later in the story. But she also worked as a secretary at the UW School of Medicine. Elizabeth working at UW mixed with more responsibilities led Bundy to re-enroll at UW as a psychology major. He was an honor student and everyone loved him. In 1971, Bundy was looking for a more meaningful job and he found one at Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. So Ann Rule wrote the probably the most famous book on him, The Stranger Beside Me. Mm-hmm. He worked with her. Like they kind of sat in a cubicle next to each other. So she's intimately aware of the guy or if she felt close to him, like they were friends. Oh yeah. Like when you were, when you work with somebody in a yeah. cubicle and you get, you become friends with them. It's crazy to think of like on the surface, you think of Ted Bundy and what he did. And it's like, he fucking worked for a suicide hotline, like mm-hmm. helping people. He's probably good at it. Oh yeah. Cause there's no, there's nothing real there. He's a psychology major. He can mold himself. Yeah, however, absolutely. He needs to He's probably real good at it. Well, and do you think that was part of his ego too? Like I'll, I'll help these people. I'm going to save them. I think one of I the biggest, this is just me personally, but I think one of the biggest things for Ted Bundy, I don't know if it's just the thrill of it or if he got any sexual pleasure out of it. But I think the thrill of being, being able to deceive so many people was almost as important to him as killing. Just knowing he got it over on him. Yeah. To be like that wolf in sheep's clothing. That's interesting. I think that's probably a good assumption. And Anne Rule would talk about how he would walk her out to at night because they would work really weird hours, you know, like middle yeah. of the night. And when they're walking through the parking lot, he would walk her out to the car and like make sure she got in her car and he'd be like, you need to watch out and there's you know people lurking in dark uh dark parking lots you never know who's out here and wow i just read the other day I, I didn't know this that he had a secret love child with ann rule they named it ja <laughs> <laughs> what would i do without my baby every thug needs a lady i gotta finish for fucking you with your skirt on in the backseat of the yukon <laughs> Is that a job rolling for real? Yeah. With the, the oh, I, I don't know. I just knew the two lines. <laughs> I, I love John. John rules awesome. He's yeah. mesmerized with the <laughs> Shanti. He's got a really good voice. Oh, man. Like that's great. That deep kind of raspy voice. Yeah. Like yeah he's that. got a couple good songs. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. He's got that cool movie with uh, Steven Seagal. <laughs> Which one's that? <laughs> He was in a few movies, he, wasn't he? They were in prison, and Seagal was undercover, so I forget. It's absolutely ridiculous. I feel like that's a straight-to-DVD movie, wasn't it? That was straight-to-DVD. I always liked Ja Rule, though. I gotta finish fucking you with your skirt on. That's a good tune, man, with Ashanti. That's a great Ashanti, song. Ashanti's good. Oh, yeah. We were just talking about her the other day, remember? Mm-hmm. Like, whatever happened to Ashanti? We were talking about Ashanti on the show? Oh, uh, no, in our text thread. Oh. <laughs> I missed that one. I got a I got a message from somebody that asked me if we were going to see the Ashanti show like in Williamsburg, Virginia. And I'm like, but we didn't talk about it on the show. No, I don't think I, so. I'm like, so someone just randomly. I'd love asked to, you, but no, I don't really live in Virginia, but I'm not making a trip for the Ashanti show. But no, that sounds great. 
I mean, if Ja Rule is opening for her, I'd maybe. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's road trip worthy. I don't know. It's a long drive, though. As much as I like Ashanti, you know. So you guys just happen to be talking about it in a text, and then someone randomly DM'd you asking if we're going to a Ashanti show. I specifically that's remember creepy. this because I remember she was featured on a song or like some young kid remixed her song. And I was like, oh, shit, you guys ever mm. like whatever happened to Ashanti? You guys remember that? This must have been one of your 7 a.m. conversations where I just. <laughs> yeah. And I was I, like, she's, I, she's really fucking attractive. Like whatever happened oh, to Ashanti? Yeah. Oh, she's a smoke show. Oh, yeah. 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 What did happen to her? Is she still around? She still. Ja Rule was fucking her in the backseat <laughs> of the Yukon with her skirt on. That's what happened to her. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that was K Fed and they were never dating. Because didn't he also do the song with the the one chick from uh, Destiny's Child? Not Beyonce, the the other Kelly one. Kelly Rowland. Yeah, right. He's got a J Lo. He's got a song with J Lo. That's real good too. He he, he knew. Ja Rule was the he man, dude. Know. I'm yeah. telling you. It was the early 2000s. He's like, you and you and you. Oh, Snoop Dogg wants a song? No. I'm gonna do the hot chicks. I'm gonna do songs with them. Smart. Absolutely. <laughs> Good What's love? Him. That's the song. What's love? That's a good Fat tune, Joe man. Ashanti. Yeah, ja you look the way you feel the way <laughs> you That's the, the J roll. Or that's the, that's the J Lo one. Oh, okay, that one. I like that one. <laughs> What's got, that one called? I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember. Well, anyways, <laughs> he's got some bangers, Ja Rule, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> Now we're gonna fucking Ja Rule. You gotta hit up that Ja Rule back catalog, man. Some good stuff there. But it's not even his catalog. It's not his song. Doesn't matter. You gotta scroll through everyone else. Doesn't matter. Comes up in the search. It's like Snoop Dogg. You just gotta see him featured on everything. Has Ja Rule ever released an album? Ever? Yeah, of course. You say that, but you don't know. (laughs) Oh, I know. It's just, it's everyone else's songs that he puts on an album. The 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 album's called Featured, Ja Rule Featured. Ja Rule's in my hip hop playlist, let me tell you. I'm not, I I do like him. I'm not trying to shit on him. I just think it's hilarious. (laughs) Although he was, he was uh, involved in that whole, uh, oh, that that festival, the fire festival thing. Not a good look for Ja Rule, no. Yeah, he kind of fucked up with yeah, that. Not, not great. All right, so on page four. Yeah, I don't know how we got to Ja Rule. <laughs> how did we get to half the things we get to? Ja Rule is Ann Rule and Ted Bundy's love child. That's why. <laughs> That's how we got here. That joke happened. <laughs> he had been waiting an hour and a half to lay that joke down. So Bundy graduated from UW in 1972, got back into politics for a bit with working on campaign teams and things like that, but it didn't really go anywhere. However, it did lead to Bundy reconnecting with Marjorie Russell. Marjorie was attending UW as an out-of-state student. She lived in California. So while doing campaign work for the Republican Party, Bundy ended up in California for a bit in 1973, and he ran into Marjorie. Marjorie was impressed with Bundy. Uh, At that point, he had accomplished a ton of stuff since she last saw him. And the two of them started dating again. Bundy was still dating Elizabeth, and he had no plans to leave her. In the fall of 1973, Bundy was accepted into the Seattle University School of Law, and his relationship with Marjorie was getting really serious. They would talk on the phone for hours, and she would fly out to Seattle to visit Bundy. Like, he had his own place that I'm almost positive he just had for this whole plan with Marjorie. Bundy started introducing her as his fiance, and they would talk about marriage. Then in January 1974, he just cut her off. 
He wasn't returning Marjorie's calls. She was writing him letters and he wasn't responding. Finally, she got through to him by phone at the end of February and she's like, what the fuck is going on? Like we're talking about getting married and stuff. And you just stopped talking to me in a completely calm voice. Bundy said, quote, Marjorie, I have no idea what you mean and hung up. Marjorie never heard from him again. And this was a success for Bundy. He had successfully gotten revenge. Cold motherfucker playing the long game here. That is so fucking weird. Yeah. And so long. Yeah. It's like, I'll show you. Like years. Yeah. Years of planning to do this. I don't hate that. <laughs> like that style. Like this is, this is the one woman that he didn't, you know, have any real criminal issues with. But like she, she ditched him when he was just trying to, you know, cut his teeth work hard you know why because he couldn't kill her because he was already linked to her and she was a high profile uh, well-to-do family so that was off the table maybe so he probably 100 would have killed her absolutely but instead he let her on made her fall in love or get smitten and he was like bye it was plan b next best thing he could do break her heart he couldn't kill her that's break right her heart. that's right i'm still gonna say it's weird it's very weird to string to someone along for but years you know the guy was busting his ass, cleaning dishes at the time, you know, before he became a piece of shit and was, you know, trying to cut his teeth in politics. And, oh, you're not good enough for me, is what she said. Uh, shortly after this, it seems like this is where stuff went off the rails for Bundy. Um, he started skipping classes. And then by April of 1974, he had just straight up dropped out of law school. We don't know for sure when Ted Bundy started killing what we do know is that he was at a minimum looking into windows to spy on women this whole time. So like all this shit that we've talked about where he's doing this normal stuff, going to law school and things, he's already looking into women's windows this whole time. And I think that everyone is in agreement, whether it's researchers or law enforcement, um, that he escalated far before his first known murder in 1974. At one point, he told investigators that he attempted his first abduction in 1969. The FBI's 1992 field guide on Ted Bundy used to profile similar offenders under the MO. Bundy told the FBI that, quote, dry runs were when he would pick up a woman and release her unharmed. On the other hand, he said that, quote, abductions were when an intended victim escaped. So if we believe his statements about 1969, he intended to kill a woman but she got away just using his words. But none of them ever came forward later on and said, Hey, I was no, I think this guy, you know, I got away from him years ago. Kind of a handful. We're going to talk about a little bit. Um, once they say, Oh yeah, I saw a guy with a sling walking around asking for help. Shit yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, no one that I know of, at least that was like in the car with him. And then they let him get her. Yeah. Right. He let them go. He told psychologist Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City while visiting family in Philadelphia in 1969. He also told homicide detective Robert D. Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 1972 and another murder in 1973 where the victim was a hitchhiker, but he refused to go into any details. This is just me personally, but I think what Bundy told Stephen McCowd and Hugh Eisenworth about his escalation is probably the closest thing to the truth based on what we've talked about with other serial killers. Bundy doesn't give dates or even a year for this information, but at least I found it to be a very fascinating look into a guy 
that most of the time refused to talk to anybody about the psychology behind what he was doing or reasoning. When he talked to them, Bundy would only talk in the third person and never use his name as to not incriminate himself. Even though the motherfucker is already sitting on death row, he still would not use it. He always his, thought he was going to get off. Right. He always thought he was going to pull this off. Every time. Yeah. So he would only talk in the third person. Um, and earlier in this conversation, he alluded to having to be drunk to act on his impulses, which we're going to learn later on is just absolutely not true. Well, when you watch the documentary, Michaud says that he gave him that idea for the third person because he said he kept meeting with him. They weren't really getting anywhere. So he gave him that idea to say, hey, why don't you speak, you know, from your psychology background that what you think this person did or how they would have reacted. He took the bait. And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. So the book that I read, Conversation with the Killer, uh, Ted Bundy, it's it's basically just a transcript. It's a transcript of the whole conversation with with him. And then they put in like little parentheses with notes and stuff. Yeah. So I want to say like 40 or 50 pages into the book, it's nothing. There's just this kind of rambling nonsense they're talking about. And then all of a sudden around 50, Stephen comes in and he's like, Hey, I got this idea now. And he he pitches it to him. And then Bunny's like, interesting. Well, I'll think about that. And then it'll give the date a couple days later. They talk again. And he bites on it, and it, this is what he does. It's almost like that OJ, if I did it book. Yeah. Kind of right. with the plausible right. deniability. Here's what I did. Right. But if I did it. Yeah. That's exactly what it's here's like. Here's what I would have done. It's like he sat there for a day or two and was like, I can make this work. Yep. I can play a game as much as, you know. Sure. sure. I can play it at my. Because I'm so smart. My level. I'm so smart. Yep. That's exactly what it is. So we're going to read this big quote from from Ted Bundy, him explaining escalation, really. And honestly, out of a 300-page book, this is the most interesting part of the book that I found to be possibly what's the real the realest thing that Ted Bundy might have okay, said. Okay. Mike Bundy, you going to read this? <clears throat> On one particular evening, when he had been drinking a great deal, and he was passing a bar, he saw a woman leaving the bar and walk up a fairly dark side street. We'd say that something seemed to seize him. I was going to say something crystallized, but that's another way of looking at it. But the urge to do something to that person seized him in a way he'd never been affected before. And it seized him strongly and to the point where, without giving a great deal of thought, he searched around for some instrumentally to uh, attack this woman with. He found a piece of two by four in a lot somewhere and proceeded to follow and track this girl. Can I just interject here that a third person analysis by a convicted serial killer would be something like you see in Silence of the Lambs, right? Where Hannibal Lecter's giving advice as to how something might have happened and describing this is a firsthand account of what took place. This is not really a third person. He's speaking in third person, but this is an eyewitness account of what someone did. Right. That's what I mean when I said, yeah. like, I think it's this ridiculous. is the, the realest yeah. thing he said. Yeah, for sure. Like, this is absolutely a real life thing that yeah. happened. <laughs> He's recounting it using a third person that's not really obscuring much. Which it, it's it's equal parts interesting and really douchey and arrogant at the same time. Yeah. You know? It's interesting to hear what he hear him describe it. It is. 
But at the same time, it's like, you're not that smart. You're not fooling us. Right. We know what you're you so are. clever. Yeah, like, like, yeah, well, yeah, we know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like, like, like yeah. when your dog is hiding from you and you're like, oh, I don't know where that, where he is. Where are you? And like, you see the tail, like out, sitting out of the, like the blanket wagging and you're like, oh, where is he? And the dog's so proud that like it hid from you. <laughs> I guess that is a little bit of karma onto him. At the end of all this, that he thought he was so smart, and the rest of the world's kind of laughing. I'm like, "That's fair. no, you're a fucking sure. idiot." Sure, yeah, you're just as bad as mm. the rest of them. But and Michaud responds, "How great a distance!" Well, so I was going to read that last sentence of what I uh, he had said was he found a piece of two by four in a lot somewhere and proceeded to follow and track this girl. How great a distance? Oh, I don't know, several blocks. And when he reached the point where he was almost uh, driven to do something. There was really no control at this point and the situation's novel because while he may have toyed around with fantasies before and made several abortive attempts to uh, act out of fantasy, it never reached the point where it actually, he was confronted with harming another individual or taking possession or abducting or whatever, which really is ultimate, I suppose. One of the ultimate antisocial acts, as it were. And so it reached a point where he, he'd gotten ahead of his quarry, this girl, and was lying in wait for her, as they say. But uh, before he, she reached the point where he was concealed, she turned and went into her house. And yet the, the sort of revelation of that existence and the frenzied desire that seized him really seemed to usher in a new dimension to that, that part of himself that was obsessed with or otherwise enamored with violence and women and sexual activity, a composite kind of thing. Not terribly well-defined, but more well-defined as time went on. This particular incident spurred him on to, on succeeding evenings, to hunt this neighbor, searching for others. I mean, he had, in the months and years previous to this, frequently passed women in alleys, women in dark streets, women alone on any number of occasions, as he was making his rounds and looking in windows. But it never occurred to him, ever at any point, to use this as an opportunity to do anything. It just never occurred to him. For some reason, this particular... The sight of that woman under those circumstances on that evening and given the condition he was in sort of signaled a breakthrough, the breaking of the tension, making a hole in the dam, not bursting it down, but again, we begin to see the cracks, as it were. On succeeding evenings, he began to scurry around the same neighborhood, obsessed with the image he had seen on the evening before. And on occasion, on one particular occasion, he saw a woman park her car and walk up to her front door and fumble for her keys. He walked up behind her and struck her with a a piece of wood he was carrying. And she fell down and began screaming, and he panicked and ran. What he had done terrified him, purely terrified him. And he was full of remorse and remonstrating with himself for the suicidal uh, nature of that activity, the ugliness of it all. And, you know, he quickly sobered up, as it were. Fear of discovery, too. Fear of discovery, sure. Fear of a number of things. He was horrified by the realization that he had capacity to do such a thing, or even attempt, that's a better word, this kind of thing. He was terribly fearful that for one reason or another, he might be apprehended. The sobering effect of that was to, for some time, close up the cracks again and not do anything. For the first time, he sat back and swore to himself that he wouldn't do something like that again, or even anything that would lead to it. And he did everything he should have done. He didn't go out at night, and when he was drinking, he stayed around friends. 
For a period of months, the enormity of what he did stuck with him, and he watched his behavior and reinforced the desire to overcome what he had begun to perceive were some problems that were probably more severe than he would have liked to believe they were. He had, within a matter of months, slowly but surely, the impact of this event lost its uh, deterrent value. And within months, he was back peeping in windows again and slipping back into that old routine. It was clear to him, I think, that the course of conduct that he had engaged in on that first monstrous occasion, as it were, was totally inappropriate, fraught with danger, badly thought out. And so the repulsion that had seized him at the moment, he knew what he had done. That repulsion began to recede. As he slipped back into his old routine, something did stick with him. That was the incredible danger by allowing himself to fall into spontaneous, unplanned acts of violence. It took six months or so until he was back thinking of alternative means of engaging in similar activity, but not something that would be likely to result in apprehension or failure of one sort or another. And uh, as I said, this took place over a period of months. Then on another night, he saw a woman walking home late at night or early in the morning. He followed her home, looked in the window, and watched her get ready for bed. And he did this on several occasions, for this was a regular kind of thing. Eventually, he created a plan where he would attack her in the house. And early one morning, he sneaked into the house through a door he knew was open and entered her bedroom. And implementing a plan based somewhat on fantasy, based, you know, on anything but personal knowledge, uh, he jumped on the woman's bed and attempted to restrain her. But all he succeeded in doing was waking her up and causing her to panic and scream. He left very rapidly. And when he was seized with the same kind of disgust, repulsion, and fear, and wonder at why he was allowing himself to attempt such an extraordinary violence. But the significance of this particular occasion was that while he did the same thing he did before, he stayed off the streets, vowed he'd never do it again, and recognized the horror of what he'd done, and certainly was frightened by what he saw happening. It only took him three months this time to get over it. That is terrifying and i think it's a rare look into the evolution of how these people ramp things up we talk about that progression and i feel like with ted bundy at least me when you watch uh documentaries and things on him it's like oh he's this nice republican you know law student he's so well adjusted this that and then all of a sudden he's killing people not a lot of stuff talks about this kind of stuff. And because we don't know a lot, we're going to talk about the murders here in a bit. Some of them. And there's just not a lot of details because he kept it all under mm. wraps. That's why I thought that this whole quote was so interesting because I feel like this is real. I feel like he was really doing this, that this wasn't him just pulling, you know, trying to pull one over. I, I think that's right. And he was a psychology major. I think he understands what took place with him. And he's analyzing, you know, the process he went through to get to where he eventually got to. It seems like it. And he understands. Every serial killer we've talked about has some form of a progression. Mm -hmm. Like they give themselves little allowances. Like it seems like with him, I was following a girl. Then this night I grabbed a two by four. If and I, I just was do a little her. bit more, it'll be all right. And then yeah. you do, you act and you're like, oh, fuck, I can't believe I did that. Mm. But and then like how this ends, it only took him three months to get over it this time. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to six months before. Yeah. Or, the, you know, that he said like, oh, I would drink, but only with friends. 
Like I'm making that effort to, uh, you know. It's the progression and the rationalization. Yeah. And it, it's quite interesting. I think more so with this guy, because like I said, he's a psychology major and I think he has a little bit more insight into what was happening with himself than, than most people would. Because he's a smart guy. Yeah, we keep fascinating. I feel like we keep going kind of back and forth on that. He is a smart guy, but he's not as smart as he thinks he is. That's true. Because he's not dumb, but he's certainly not as smart as the lawyers that he's been speaking with and giving these interviews to and thinking he's going to get himself out of, you know, any convictions yeah. or jail. He's, he is a smart guy. Yeah, he's not a dumb person who thinks he's smart. He's right. a smart guy who has an overinflated ego and right. believes he's a lot smarter than he actually I, is. Absolutely. I agree. A little after midnight on January 4th, 1974, right around the time that Bundy ended his relationship with Marjorie, he broke into the basement apartment of 18-year-old Karen Sparks, who was a student at UW. Bundy brutally beat her with a metal rod from her bed frame, and then he sexually assaulted her with the same rod or a metal speculum that he brought with him, causing severe internal injuries. Bundy beat her so bad that Karen was in a coma for 10 days, she survived, but she was left with permanent physical and mental disabilities. Uh, he completely ruined her life. Yeah. She had a lot of brain damage. Yeah. That's one thing with him that makes him, I, I will say that makes him scary, is that it's so fast and so silent. You don't hear him coming at all. It's just very fast and brutal. That's almost like a Richard Ramirez type. Like yeah. It was break into your house mm -hmm. and beat you while you're sleeping with a tire iron or something, you know, a hammer or whatever. And just that's it. Like you, you don't even have a chance to defend yourself. That's terrifying. Getting woken up like that. You don't even you wake no up. Chance. You even wake up. No, like you're just dead or unconscious. And sure. On January 31st, 1974, 21 year old Linda Ann Healy went out to a bar called Dante's Tavern to get a beer with a few friends. Linda was entering her senior year at UW as a psychology major. And on that night, they didn't stay at the bar too long because Linda had to get up early for work. And one of their friends needed to get on a bus before 10 p.m. So they all headed out a little after 930. After getting home around 10 p.m., Linda talked to her boyfriend on the phone for about an hour. And then she went upstairs and hung out with one of her roommates until about 12 a.m., Around 12 a.m., they said goodnight, and Linda went down to her bedroom. Linda worked for a company that put together weather reports for the ski slopes in the area. So every day at 5.30 a.m., she would go to the college radio station and read the snow conditions for the slopes. Linda used an alarm clock radio, which played music every morning. One of her roommates heard the radio playing, but assumed that maybe Linda wasn't going to go to work, and she was just laying in bed listening to the radio. About an hour later at 6.30 a.m. that morning, the manager of the radio station called to see where Linda was. He was concerned enough that he asked her roommate to answer the phone to check if Linda's bike was there. Linda rode her bike to work every day, and it was still there at the house. Her roommates then went into her room, and everything looked like it was in perfect condition, but it was kind of too perfect. Linda never made her bed during the week, and her bed was made like military perfect. The next thing they found was that the side door was unlocked, and one of the roommates specifically remembered locking it. As the day went on, her roommates got more and more worried, but when Linda's parents showed up to take her out to dinner, they told her parents how no one had seen her since the night before. At that point, it was 6 p.m., 
and her father thought that maybe she was just out with her boyfriend or something. However, Linda's mother called the police immediately to report her as missing. At first, police treated this as a college student who hadn't come home yet or something along those lines, and that seemed very possible here. There were no signs of a crime happening, um, but later that night, a detective came to the house, and he was looking around Linda's room. He decided to pull the blankets off her bed and found that there were blood stains on the sheet and pillowcase. Then the detective went to her closet and found the nightgown Linda usually wore was pushed back a bit. Like it was, everything was hanging normally, but it was like pushed back between clothes where you wouldn't Mm -hmm. really see it. And it had blood around the collar. Ted Bundy didn't get into this crime too much. What we do know is that at some point in the night, Bundy broke into the house, probably through the unlocked side door. But he told Stephen McCod that it was the front door. Bundy said that he went door to door in the house and then landed on Linda's. His attack on her would have had to been really quick and brutal. Her roommate right across the hall didn't hear anything that night. Assuming he just hit her in the head with a blunt object while she was sleeping, gave Bundy enough time to dress Linda, clean up the room, and quietly leave the house with her. Can you imagine being a roommate and thinking about that? Like that, can that... That is everybody's like worst nightmare, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, like sleeping at night, you don't even know someone's breaking into your house, and then across the room from you, they're killing someone brutally and taking them out. It's so brazen. Dude, he to didn't break even kill her. Out. He just knocked her unconscious, dressed her, and beat took her, her out. Right, but beat her enough that you don't even know, and you wake up the next day and you still don't know anything's wrong because you he made the bed, he cleaned it up. That's why you close your blinds, first of all. <laughs> but just to do that in a house full of people is so brazen. It's that arrogance we talked you about. You don't that know cockiness. who's in the house. I mean, there could be. So we there talk- could have been a weightlifter friend up, you know, getting a glass of milk in the middle of the night that would have flattened him. You know what I mean? That's why I think that that <laughs> quote. <laughs> that weightlifter friend getting a glass of milk. Had to get that. Had to get that. That 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 calcium in his his body late at night. He's not like this. making a protein shake after that midnight workout. Like Bundy's not this overwhelming force that could handle right. a whole house. He's not full a tough guy. He's not a tough guy. Right? He doesn't know who's in that house, what party they had, who might live there. Someone could have stomped his ass. There was something else I was going to say with regards to that. Uh, it slipped my mind. I, I don't remember. If I think of it, we'll come back. All I'm saying is if I was happened to be banging Linda's roommate <laughs> that night and I was in the house and I got up for a glass of water or milk or whatever. You'd have beat his ass. I'd have beat his ass in the kitchen and this story mm-hmm. wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Just the fact that he, you know. And went door to door. No, if you believe what he said, that he and went he door also to door. Sure. He broke through a door. He said he broke in through the front door, but the and the roommate said she locked all the doors, but the the side door was unlocked. But she said she remembers locking it, right? So he probably so went in through the side, and like, but they but did they find signs of him breaking in, or did she maybe just misremember and not lock that door? Yeah, actually? I mean, maybe she misremembered. It's just not that much of a soft target, I guess. No, it's not a house full of people. <laughs> yeah, right. And like I said, if you if you take his word for it, he went door to door kind of debating on which door he was going to go into. Like, oh, like, who am I going to kill? Which one? But how like, do you know what's behind the door? Like, but it's the arrogance. Her roommate like, and her boyfriend might have been up smoking a joint there. And the guy was like, who the fuck is this clown? And just cold cocked <laughs> him. Yeah. Right. He's not the bull we ordered tonight for, for, <laughs> for me to be cocked. It just seems very risky. 
It very much does. That's, but that also makes it more terrifying. Yeah, I guess. Like, when are you safe? According to what Bundy told McCod is that he probably gagged Linda and she came to either in his Volkswagen bug or outside of it when they got to a remote area of Taylor Mountain. Bundy said that this location was chosen beforehand and after he raped Linda at this location, he killed her quick, but he didn't say how. Based on other things Bundy said to investigators, it's believed that a lot of his victims died while Bundy was raping them, like he would strangle them from behind while he was raping them. That's really dark. But we don't know that. That's just yeah. assumption based on, like I said, based on what he's told other investigators. All we're left with uh, with this murder is that Linda's jawbone was found at Taylor Mountain in 1975, and Bundy and his longtime girlfriend, Elizabeth, went to Dante's Tavern a lot. Elizabeth also said that around this time, Bundy would walk home a lot when they went out, and usually walking home, he would pass Dante's, like it would be on his route. So it's safe to say that Ted Bundy either saw Linda at the bar when him and Elizabeth were, mm-hmm. were drinking, having dinner, or whatever, or he just happened to pass her while he was walking. So I think he's probably keyed in on her specifically. And he may have went door to door inside that house, but he was looking for her. Yeah, he b- w- maybe didn't know what door was hers. Yeah, maybe he even peeked yeah. in a few of them. Exactly. With the, those, you know, if you're being that courageous, you're looking in. Oh, that's not her. Right. Was gone. I think so. Yeah, this wasn't a random kill. No, not at all. After this, female college students started disappearing at a rate of one per month. Jesus. On March 12, 1974, Ted Bundy abducted 19-year-old Donna Mason from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. That evening, Donna was planning to go to a dance class at the College Activities Building. Then right after that, she was going to go to a jazz concert at 8 p.m. in the library. Donna left her door a little after 7 p.m. for a dance class, which that building was about 200 yards away. Donna never showed up for that dance class. So somewhere along her walk to the activities building, Bundy abducted her. One of his favorite ways to get these young women to drop their guard is that he would fake an injury and intentionally drop items in front of them. If someone took the bait and offered to help him, he would ask them if they could help him carry that item back to his vehicle. And in a lot of these cases, Bundy strategically parked his Volkswagen bug in quiet areas away from potential witnesses. This gave him enough time and space to hit his victim over the head with a crowbar and abduct them. Reminds me of Buffalo Bill in the parking lot trying to get the couch mm-hmm. in the van. Exact same thing. I bet that's where they got this from. I'm sure a lot of things were based off Ted Bundy. Oh, yeah. He had a thing for the Volkswagen bug, though. We're going to see that in part two and three. He steals a lot of Volkswagen bugs along his, he loved his travels. Yeah, That is odd. <laughs> Big fan. Yeah. <laughs> When I was a kid, a, we had a Volkswagen Bug in 1974. Was it cool? Yeah, I've never been in one. They look tiny. That's not great. Are they more spacious <laughs> inside than you think? I mean, or no? Yeah, it's, it's okay. Like the engine's in the back and weird stuff. But they're all two-door? They were? I think is, I think so. Two-door cars I really remember. make me, not that many people have them anymore, but they make me claustrophobic. Like, I don't want to have to move your seat to get out of the back. Oh, definitely not. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, trapped. Yeah. Like nowadays, there's no way I'm sitting in the back of a two-door car. No. Wasn't the wasn't the engine in the trunk? Yeah, okay. engine's, saying, engine's yeah, in yeah. the back. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
And you just be stuck back there in the back yeah. seat. Like, unless that person in front of you moves their seat, you can't get out. Yeah. That's just I, thinking I about it now that. makes it really difficult to breathe. Like weird car. I can't do that. Fucking Nazi company. Volkswagen. Jesus. <laughs> well, I mean, they are. <laughs> they are. <laughs> they are 100% Nazis. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a bit here, but Ted Bundy he rigged his that's i think that's part of the reason why he liked these so much is because he could take that passenger seat out and it would give enough room mm. to have a victim in there he's like a uh, death proof with uh, kurt russell and his <laughs> death mobile right <laughs> smashing so, rose mcgowan's face into the such a good into the side of the <laughs> car didn't we discuss that on one of our uh, shows recently? That always gets rated as uh, Tarantino's worst movie. I fucking love it. Really? I it's love Death Proof. One of the best Tarantino movies. I think I put it in my top three. We I, all put it in our top three. I don't three. disagree. I love it's it. Really it's really good. great. When it's, they whoop his ass at the end of that movie. Yeah. It's so great. How do people not like that movie? I don't know. It's the same people that probably fucking think lasagna is great. You can't trust it. <laughs> When Donna didn't come home that night, her roommates didn't think anything was wrong. Donna hitchhiked all the time, and sometimes she wouldn't come back to her dorm for days at a time. Because of this, it took six days for anyone to report her as missing. Once she was reported as missing, police were quick to act. Search teams were set up using tracking dogs, but no one ever found any trace of Donna's remains or any clues. The whole hitchhiking thing is still just wild. That people did that. People did that all the time. Can you imagine just getting in a car with strangers now? No. Like, it's fucking crazy. And we all kind of, (laughs) it's crazy. Like, that was not our day. And it was even before your day. Like, it wasn't like a thing we did. Like, that's weird. It's nuts. Yeah. I've seen I don't even like talking to strangers at the the supermarket, let alone like getting in a car and having you take me somewhere. I do remember we. I remember picking up a couple hitchhikers like in the eighties. <laughs> you at the when tail you're, when you're out and about. <laughs> I was trying to do your favor, pal. Yeah, of course you hitchhiked in your day. I personally ninety not years ago hitchhike. Why would you say such a mean thing to me? <laughs> I was trying to let it go and say it was all before our time. <laughs> but just that whole West Coast hitchhiking thing. It's wild. You would think as soon as you started hearing these stories about, I mean, but you also had that mindset of, oh, well, that that's not going to happen to me. I you guess, know, like, yeah. oh, I'm safe. Oh, I, I trust this man. Like, what is it Mac does in, in uh, Always Sunny? I gave him the ocular scan. <laughs> yeah. Like, when he, I gave him the ocular scan. He's safe. <laughs> I'm going to get in. What year was uh, Ed Kemper? It was before this, right? Uh, a little after. Was it a little after? I can't yeah. remember. Right. But even then, you don't know if you're hearing about it yet. Yeah, I guess. same kind of time frame though, same deal. But the first time you hear about, but there's also a difference between not- Ed Kemper and Ted Bundy, right? Like Ted Bundy might be a good-looking, charismatic guy. Ed Kemper was this giant man, maybe a little socially awkward. And I, I feel like you're more likely to get in a car with Ted Bundy. I guess, but the first time you hear about girls disappearing, maybe you're like maybe right. I'm not going to get in a car with a strange man. I'll I take the know. bus. I'll take the bus. But I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand. I, I did not grow up in a hitchhiking age. Like, I don't even understand that to begin with. Like, I've seen a couple of people hitchhiking on the side of the road. And I'm like, good luck, pal. Yeah, you're right. not fucking going we, anywhere. We, we you know, arrogantly scoff at them and we keep going by. Like, you might kill <laughs> me, but I might kill you. Like, you don't know. Each of us could be either pop- way. Could yeah. be terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. You just I'm know. good. I'm sorry. I see people broke. I will gladly give you 20 bucks, at, but then just go like 
I'm going to keep going and you keep going. I saw a girl walking with a gas can on the highway the other day and I thought, you know, maybe I should circle back around and give her a ride. But her accomplice might be hiding in the bushes with a shotgun. Could have been a brick in that gas can. Yeah, she like, could have I fucking slugged like, you over the head with that. You just can't trust anyone anymore. Yeah. I don't think you ever could. Yeah, could yeah. what? You could could what? trust people. I don't think you ever could. I, I think don't even people- trust you two guys. Like I, <laughs> I'm prepared at all times to be attacked. Like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. Imagine we jump up on his desk and just start stabbing Mike in his neck. <laughs> this, He's like, this I fucking thing, knew it. This whole I thing. knew it, you motherfuckers. <laughs> Three and a half years. I was like, I, I knew it. They played the long game. <laughs> See, I don't trust you guys. Like, like you, you gave know. us a dirty look in 2018. <laughs> we got you, motherfucker. We convinced you to do a podcast with us. <laughs> we to get you. <laughs> so no one ever found any clues or remains of Donna's all we know about her murder is what Bundy told detective Robert Keppel in 1989 Bundy told him that the scene was quote nightmarish and that he left Donna's body quote up in the mountains he said that he buried her in a spot relatively close to where he would bury other victims but he told Keppel that police would never find her skull according to Bundy he severed Donna's head and took it back home where he lived with Elizabeth He went on to say that he burned her skull in the fireplace and vacuumed up the ashes. Bundy said, quote, it's a lot of work and certainly very risky under the circumstances. I mean, the kids come home from school and there's a roaring fire in the fireplace and it's warm outside. (laughs) On April 17th, 1974, Bundy abducted 18-year-old Susan Rancourt from the Central Washington University campus in Ellensburg. A little before 8 p.m. that night, Susan was doing laundry in her dorm building and then had a meeting to go to at Munson Hall. This meeting was for students who had been at the college for at least a year to help guiding students that were just coming in. At 10 p.m., the meeting finished up and Susan planned to go grab her laundry and then go meet a friend. But Susan never made it back to get her clothes or meet her friend. Unlike Donna, Susan wasn't living that whole free spirit life and she never hitchhiked or did anything like that. So when she didn't show up the following day, panic set in and she was reported as missing again. Like the other victims, the search turned up nothing until 1975 when her skull was found in the mountains with a huge fracture. Again, Bundy didn't really give any details other than saying that he committed the murder. So we kind of have to piece it together a bit. Did he say that? What's up? Yeah, I, I killed her, but you have to piece it together. Um, you're just saying, no, I'm just saying we have to, yeah. And then we have to fill in the blanks. Yeah. Well, he didn't say that, though. No, he just said that he killed her. Okay. And he wouldn't really go into details. We know Bundy was in Ellensburg at the time. One of his childhood friends named Terry Storick was living in Ellensburg at the time. Susan disappeared. And right around the time Bundy visited him. We also know that Susan wasn't Bundy's only intended victim. Five days before Susan went missing, a man wearing a sling asked a young woman if she could help him carry his books to his car. According to this woman, the man seemed nice and charming, but when she got to his Volkswagen Beetle, she noticed that the passenger seat was missing. At that point, she put the books on the roof of the car and took off. So that's what I'm saying. He had that passenger seat ripped out, so there's more room. Well, and if you knock someone out, they're going to be lower profile in the car versus just being out cold in a passenger seat. Right. They're right, laying they're down, down right down on the floor. More, yeah. Which there's still probably not enough room for like a body to lay. Like that, that's a tiny car. 
They're it's not, not. It's not giant. Yeah. yeah. I still get claustrophobic just thinking about it again. <laughs> I don't. I don't love those at all. I had a Nissan Pulsar in the early nineties. I don't know what that a had Pulsar a re- that had a really small back seat. You would have loved that one. About two hours before Susan went missing, Bundy tried the same thing on another college student named Kathleen Dovio. According to Kathleen, a man wearing a sling was outside the college library struggling to hold his books. He asked her for help, and Kathleen grabbed his books and walked back to his Volkswagen Beetle. Once they got in the car, he dropped his keys and asked Kathleen to help find them. Kathleen got bad vibes at this point because the car was parked in the darkest spot on the campus, so instead of bending over, she stepped back and pointed them out and then turned and took off. You got to just wake up sometimes just terrified that it was almost you of that, you know, these victims that got away. It, that's nightmare yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Again, I go back to like the mindset because I have this mindset sometimes. I'm guilty of it where it's like, well, it's not me. Like that doesn't that stuff doesn't happen to me. Sure. You know, we live in a, you know, pretty low crime area. If a serial killer started terrorizing our town, like you would never like, you know, there's people in our, our town that don't lock their front doors. Sure. I know of that. Because you've broken this, in and raped their wives. No. <laughs> Please, sir. How dare you even implicate me on raping wives? I am paid high dollar to come into homes and have sex with wives while their little beta cuck husbands jerk their tiny little dicklets in the corner. <laughs> Sir, you please retract that statement. I I retract. I apologize. I cost a pretty penny, sir. Detective Keppel, who interviewed Bundy in 1989, believes that Susan took the bait. And when she bent over to look for the keys, Bundy hit her on the head with a crowbar, causing... (laughs) That's the end of the keg. Oh, it's slurping. That's that. There you go. Good thing we want a case of beer tonight. <laughs> so he thinks that uh, Susan took the bait and Bundy hit her on the head with a crowbar, causing that massive fracture on her skull when they found it. It's pretty, I, I, I say the word brazen, I used it before, but it's pretty brazen to hunt on a college campus like this where you assume there's lots of people around, right? It's, and to try it multiple yeah. times with girls running away. Like if I try this in like girls pegged me and started running away. Wouldn't you leave? He doesn't give a fuck. He stays there and finds well, he another uses victim. The light. We'll, we'll find out. He uses these college libraries to read and shit. Oh man. It's just, yeah, it's, it's that just arrogance. huge balls, right? Like a, a, a feeling of being invincible. It's maybe f- like it's far before the days of surveillance cameras. So he doesn't have that to worry about. Yeah, at all. definitely. But there's still mul- if there's multiple women wa- women running away. From- Even if there's just multiple pe- women people around, you're not going to approach someone. In, in, I mean, I mean, yeah. you would think you wouldn't. The average person would not do that. I think he just assumes he fits in so well as this law student or you know whatever he considers himself. These are fairly planned out. These weren't like. Like he didn't have a victim in mind. Like he wasn't following someone for a long time, but these were planned out as far as with like, he strategically parked his car where he could, it was dark and he could get away real quick. We'll see next, probably next week. He gets impulsive and does some real brazen shit, like Mm. broad daylight in front of tons of people. 
On Monday, May 6, 1974, Ted Bundy abducted college student Roberta Parks from Oregon State University in Corvallis. Details about her disappearance aren't great. We know two things on that day. Um, she had gotten into a fight with her boyfriend. He wanted to get married and she wasn't having it. And two, she was last seen walking between her dorm at Sackett Hall and the Memorial Union building. While walking by Memorial Union building, Roberta stopped to talk to her friend Lorraine about a Spanish test that was coming up. After that, Roberta told Lorraine that she was headed to get some ice cream and then go home. And that was the last time she was seen. Again, her remains would be found on Taylor Mountain, which by this time had become the burial site for all of Ted Bundy's victims so far. All Bundy gave regarding this murder was that weird third-person shit that he was giving to Stephen McCod. According to Bundy, she was lonely and depressed, which makes sense with the, the boyfriend issue. And after talking for a bit, he convinced Roberta to go with him to get some food and grab a beer. Bundy said, in his opinion, there were two possible reasons why she accepted his invitation. He was either convincing enough or she just wanted to take her mind off of things. Once they were in the car, Bundy lied and said that he needed to collect his thesis from a nearby typist. At that point, he drove out to a secluded area where he could attack her, then drove another five hours to his burial site on Taylor Mountain. And that's something that I think I feel like I might have glossed over a bit in this outline, but all these victims are significant. They're they're all in Washington State or in Oregon, like in a general area. But Taylor Mountain is far away mm. from most of them, so he's driving hours. And with this um, specific murder, he drove, he killed her, and then drove five hours to bury her. Bury her, and then five hours just to come back, or wherever he was going, probably back with, you know, his. His girlfriend, Liz. Which logistics-wise is smart. Well, yeah, you get, get as far away as possible. Yeah. And that's sure. that's the thing where, you know, I keep, feel like we keep alluding to, like, part two and three or whatever, but he really makes a mess of all of this as far as, you know, state lines are concerned and when it's a federal crime and when it's not. And, yeah. you know, he crosses state lines a lot, whether it's on purpose or not, you know. By this point, panic was starting to set in that there was a connection between all these cases. And that's where we're going to pick back up on part two. In part two, we'll get into this investigation of missing college students in this area. Um, his last murder in this area of George Ann Hawkins. I wrote here that we're going to try to wrap it up and, and not go to a third part, but that's just not happening. So <laughs> <laughs> never we'll, thought it would. Yeah, we'll get into that stuff next week and, and see where it goes from there. But. Well, if there's ever something that's going to go, because we, we're making an effort to get everything done in two parts now, if there was ever going to be one that goes longer, perhaps Ted Bundy is uh, appropriate. You know who didn't make mistakes? The people that just signed up for Patreon. They're loving life now. <laughs> we got some special shout outs to Joseph Richardson. The bigger the fupa, the tastier the chalupa. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Genius. Veronica Curino. Maggie Long, Gabby, Dave's new sugar baby. Hey, what's up? Dave, you got a sugar baby? Apparently. Okay. Where am I writing a check to? <laughs> well, Sam Squamsh 76, Necronama Poop, Mitch Ebrill, Dan the Crier, Mike Oxmall, John Clancy, Taylor, Titty Twister Annihilator 69, <laughs> Kayla Lowe, 
Mark Coffin. Mike loves rusty trombones. <laughs> Give it a try, I guess. Spicy Cantaloupe. Adam Gardner. Brandon. DJ. Bobby Petty. Robert Williams. Mario Sol- Soltero. Hannah Nicole. Handpan. Ryan Oldfather. Trey Allen. Sherry Blagg. Blake. Chris Ramirez. Noah Wallace. Ford's Boards. Addie Raber. Keegan Robbins, Maisie Fugate, Hellionis, Ragnar the Decimator, Irma Sanchez, Deep in My Punani. <laughs> That's Dave's. That's Dave's. That's Dave's. Damn it. <laughs> he catches me every week. <laughs> There's certain words that Dave likes that I just, you can tell. D, pin my Punani. <laughs> I know I did. I didn't read it properly because I, I D pin my punani <laughs> strange unicorn Molly Kelly Joe Moraldo Justin Schmickle Alicia Laura DRC Lady Lad Late Lady Lady Nikki DiCardo Javier Vasquez Tool sucks. All right, just stop right there. Wow, it's absurd. With an exclamation it's point, ridiculous even. name. Come on, he's calling you guys out. Dead Neds 007, Oscar Bermudez, Nathan Can, Brenda S, Dirty Dilf, Holly Ogden, <laughs> Colonel Cum Dumpster. Here we go. Reporting for duty, sir. <laughs> right. Oh, fucking army. Open Dude, wide and report. If the Aztec warriors ever want to go to battle, let's go. Because we got cum dumpsters and fucking dick schlongs and whatever else fucking stupidity. And us three will be blowing our whistles as our we have our men attack and men and women attack. Alexandra Pilcher, Lauren Teske, G-Spot. I'm surprised you could find that word to read it, Mike. I know. That was a tough one. <laughs> I just sounded out. <laughs> Chris Robert, Margaret Gurgis, Blake Roche, Ian's Weed Grinder, Christina Fontenot, Jonathan Seymour, Kim Robertson, Dresden 4077, Bad Pilot, Kinsey Varva, Dave W., Yvonne Francis, Jake McCall, Doc Shineshine, Doc, Son, Doc Sunshine, Derek Fraley, Israel Romero, Holly Watson, fuck your butt. <laughs> Way to end it off. Fuck your butt. Thank you all very much. We are at patreon.com slash Necronalpod. And hey, if you have not checked it out yet on Patreon, we have been getting a lot of great reviews for our creepy audio. Maybe our best Patreon episode ever or most popular Based on listeners' reviews. Might want to check it out and you could hear this. <laughs> Super creepy. That is the Aztec death whistle that uh, Ian, Dave, and I all purchased immediately after doing the uh, show. <laughs> I think they're almost sold out on Amazon now by the amount of people that have sent us pictures of buying them. Check out our posts on social to see the exact one that we bought. We posted a photo <laughs> of it because it's got good reviews and it sounds fucking awesome. It's you won't time. get let down. It's midnight, blowing the Aztec death Have you cupped the bottom of it yet? (laughs) He did the other night when he started blowing it. terrifying. Yeah. It's not as loud, but it's terrifying. Yeah, it gets the point across. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Ted Bundy would be wise not to use one of these when entering a home because that would give away where he was coming. <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, yeah. <laughs> Stupid point, Mike, but yes. <laughs> um, all right, that's all I got. Ian, what do you got? For iTunes, I have one for Charlie Oma, B. Woodford, Miranda0498, and Yo416. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. Dave, international? No international this week. I don't have anything. Well, they hate us. Australian friends, where are you at? New Zealand friends, where are you at? All right, anything else? We good? It was a good show. Long show. That was good. Part one. We'll see where this goes. Next week, hear my take on Rigatoni. (laughs) (laughs) Here on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, at Necronomapod, patreon.com slash Necronomapod. Amazon.com search Necronomapod for all of our latest merch. And hey, we're going to be working on some new shirts. We'll have those out, you know, in the coming weeks. Uh, but we haven't posted anything in a while. So we'll, we'll get some new merch out there soon. And uh, what else? I think that's it. Necronomapod.com for uh, stickers. And we'll have some koozies coming back eventually here soon, too. So stand by for those. We'll let you guys know on that. Thank you all very much. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Sorry. What the fuck was that? I got the the wrong one. Shut it the fuck down. Like some weird fourth dude (laughs) drinking a beer. It says beer open. I don't know. What was that? And then it was the follow up. I I don't know. I'm sorry. Talk about breaking kayfabe. People know. I say you leave it the fuck in. Who cares? Hey, spoiler alert, we've been, using a, we've been using a keg for three years. If you thought I was still opening a can, it's not true. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. <laughs>